everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Sasha Podelsky, AASA's Advocacy Director, and you're listening to the PEP Talk podcast, a new way for AASA members to stay engaged with our policy and advocacy work. If it's your first time tuning in, thanks for joining us. Here at PEP Talk, we cover all things that could be remotely labeled as education policy, and all our shows are available for download under the PEP Talk landing page on the AASA website. Looking ahead, if you have a show idea or guest you think you, we should have on, shoot me a note uh, at spadelsky at aasa.org. Our episode today, which you'll hear, uh, features Maggie Garrett, who is the Vice President for Public Policy for Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Uh, Maggie has been working on church-state separation issues for nearly 20 years, and although she started her civil liberties work as a litigator, she now works in the public policy arena. Uh, she represents Americans United before Congress and the Trump administration, and she oversees the state legislative program. But much of Maggie's work focuses on ensuring that public funds are used for public schools, which is great. Uh, and for the last 15 years, Americans United has served as a co-chair of the National Coalition for Public Education, NCPE, a coalition of more than 50 national organizations that opposes private school voucher schemes at the federal level. Uh, Maggie has spoken about church-state issues on TV and radio numerous times and been quoted all over the place, and she's presented on church-state issues uh, across the country. She's been participated in briefings and new testified numerous times before state legislative committees. Uh, but before she joined AU's legislative department, she was a legislative director at the ACLU of Georgia, where she litigated high-profile cases on issues including the separation of church and state, free speech, uh, reproductive rights, and voting rights. And she also lobbied the Georgia General Assembly on the issue of private school vouchers, as well as other issues. And it's been my honor to co-chair the National Coalition for Public Education alongside Maggie for the past seven years. But Maggie's really been fighting these schemes for over 15 years, and um, it's great to have her on. And we're going to talk about what's changed about these fights on Capitol Hill over her tenure, and also what has stayed the same. But I thought it would also be important to talk about the other work she engages in when AU receives a call or an email that a public school may be violating critical church-state separation principles or gets an, an email or call from a district leader who's concerned about uh, staying, abreast, staying um, in line with the First Amendment. And um, I don't often get to talk about what Maggie and her team do in those situations as well as what issues she sees emerging in the education space. Um, but we'll also get into that as well after we talk about vouchers. But let's start with what you're most well-known for on Capitol Hill, and you are really well-known on Capitol Hill for this work, I should add, um, and what you work directly with ASA on, which is private school voucher schemes. My first question is a pretty easy one. Why does Americans United care so much about vouchers, that you've devoted so much staff time and resources to fighting private school vouchers, uh, for the past 20 years and taken on this really important, uh, vital national leadership role in terms of leading the National Coalition for Public Education. So first, I want to start by thanking you, Sasha, for having me and thanking AASA. And I also just want to make sure to say um, what amazing partners you are and how much I enjoy working with you. Um, and to everyone listening to the podcast, too, as an AASA member, um, how lucky you are to have Sasha and Noelle um, leading you. Um, so they're just really great and I can't say enough great things about them. But, um, but that wasn't the question. The question is, um, why does Americans United care about this issue? And actually it goes back to our founding. So we were founded in 1947 
to um, fight for the separation of church and state. And when were we when we were created, our founders listed some immediate objectives. And one of those objectives was fighting to preserve public schools, um, to make sure that religion, people of all religions could could attend them. And the charter actually said, uh, quote, next to the Constitution itself, our public school system has been our strongest bulwark against the development of religious intolerance and in our political life. So fighting private school vouchers, protecting public schools has actually been part of our DNA. Um, but the sort of more specific answer about um, private school vouchers and how it you know, connects directly to church-state separation is that private school vouchers primarily fund religious schools. Religious schools are often um, subsidized by um, religious institutions, the church um, or other house of worship, and so they are cheaper. And so it ends up that most of the kids participating in private schools are really going, or participating in voucher programs are going to private schools. And we believe that using taxpayer dollars to fund uh, religious schools is a fundamental violation of religious freedom and that the government shouldn't compel anyone to pay for the religion um, of someone else. And I mean, honestly, they shouldn't even be forcing you to pay for your own religion. And so we think that that is um, critical. Um, and so vouchers are a, a big violation of church-state separation. And when you started leading NCPE, you know, what did it look like? Who belonged? Who didn't? You know, we like to talk about how now it's a really diverse membership, but how did you bring so many groups to the table? Obviously, it, was, it had to be about more than just church separation in terms of building this coalition. And was it a combination of you reaching out and groups reaching out and saying, how can we help you fight this? Or was it just that this issue was getting more and more attention in states? And so there was just people were just naturally more engaged and, and the coalition kind of grew that way? So when I started as a co-chair, we probably had about 30 groups that we could count on to fight any voucher bill that we were working on, you know, maybe, maybe sign a letter in opposition to a voucher bill. Um, and the they were really diverse. It was um, civil rights groups like the NAACP and the ACLU, um, groups like AASA, National Education Association, AFT and the education side. We had a lot of uh, representation from religious groups. Uh, so it was pretty diverse, but we have now grown, I'd say we have at least 20 more organizations that are fundamental um, in our fight. And some of the, the groups that have really joined and have become really vocal opponents of vouchers through NCPE have been um, the, the military groups, groups that represent uh, schools that get impact aid and disability groups. And I think it is because they have really, their communities have been, become targets of vouchers. So Congress will often say that they want to have limited vouchers and they will pick target communities that they think um, are vulnerable and that it would be hard to say no to. So disability groups, um, military connected families are some of those, but the groups that represent those, you know, students with disabilities and, and military connected families recognize that vouchers actually harm their community um, rather than uh, protect or provide um, you know, better education for their communities. And so they've become incredibly active. Religious groups have always been involved, but I think they're becoming more active. Uh, we actually just sponsored a congressional panel with groups like Pastors for Public Schools, African American Ministers in Action, the Hindu American Fund. And so I think their um, interest is in the upswing. Um, but as, as far as getting people on board, sometimes we will recognize like, wow, this 
vouchers can have a really in negative impact on this community and we reach out to them. Um, and sometimes they will, you know, other groups will say, wow, this is a really concerning issue. Who, who, who's working on this issue? Who do I go to? Um, and they end up coming to us um, and then becoming part of our coalition. That's really interesting. And I think as uh, the voucher fight has evolved too, in terms of not just being about low-income kids in, um, in failing schools, but like you mentioned, targeting specific constituencies within the, within, you know, the education world. It, we've certainly seen some, some outgrowth of, of groups who are specifically interested in just talking about, for example, the impact that vouchers would have on students with disabilities or the impact it would have on students who are in rural areas or whatever it may be. And so I think that's part of why also the coalition has grown a little bit in terms of the diversity because the, the target has, has widened essentially in terms of who's eligible for these programs. But in, in terms of how, you know, we go to the Hill and, and talk about these issues, um, and there are a lot of issues, right, to, to discuss. It's, I mean, we have obviously the church state issues we have from ASA's perspective, whether or not this is an effective program, this is a good return on investment, this actually improves educational outcomes for kids. There's all of those arguments. But what, what do you know about, you know, the messaging that seems to work best in terms of reaching staff on Capitol Hill? Like what seems to be the, the things that we say that um, they get the most attention or that when we have a hearing like we did yesterday with Secretary DeVos, uh, in the Education and, and Labor Committee, what are, what are the things that, that, that either politicians themselves or their staff, you know, really latch onto when it comes to this voucher uh, debate? Yeah, so that, I think that's a really good question. Um, I would say that the public at large is really um, compelled by the um, idea that public funds should fund public schools. I think that's a really compelling message. That's sort of NPPE's tagline. We make sure to talk about that all the time. But one of the things that legislators and staff have been really interested in lately is the discrimination issue. Um, the idea that public schools have, you know, all of these civil rights protections that they provide their students. But if you take a voucher, all of a sudden these private schools that are taking tons of government funds, they don't have to adhere to any of these. So, um, you know, I think, you know, speaking about groups that work with kids with disabilities, they really recognize this because if you take a voucher, um, you then forfeit your rights under IDEA, and um, that is a big problem. Um, and, you know, many in the, the community have fought for years to get these protections in the public schools, and then you simply take a voucher and all those rights disappear, um, and many parents don't even realize it. So I think those are the issues that uh, members of Congress are very concerned about. They've, members of Congress themselves have been fighting um, to add these protections um, in, into public schools and make sure that they're there. And then, you know, these other schools can then take the same money and be exempt from everything. And I think that's really troubling. Um, one, it seems very unfair to public schools. Um, two, it's really unfair to these students and they are losing the protections that we, you know, our public policy says they deserve and they need. Yeah, and, and just because you have that civil rights background, what are some of the, the protections in more detail that we usually talk about other than IDEA? Because I think that, that comes to mind right away for our folks, but what else is there? Yeah, I think um, Title IX is, is something that's, that's really problematic. So Title IX, um, you probably all know, protects um, girls from uh, discrimination, and it also has um, lots of requirements for um, sexual harassment and those sorts of things. But if you take the money um, and you go to a private school, uh, none of those apply to students. Um, another thing that people don't think about 
so much is teachers' rights. So, um, you know, employment discrimination. If you work for a public school, you can't be discriminated against on the basis of your religion. If you work for a private school, they can say, um, I often use um, Lutheran since I was raised Lutheran, but um, they can say, we're a Lutheran school, we only hire Lutherans. So we're going to take tons of government money uh, to fund our school, and then we're going to say, you know, no one else can apply to be a teacher but Lutheran. They can also discriminate against LGBTQ students. Um, there have been multiple studies demonstrating that private schools that are taking vouchers frequently have um, anti-LGBTQ admission policies. So, you know, a, a gay student would be uh, prevented from attending, or even a student whose parents, who has, a, you know, their parents are a same-sex couple, they would be pre prevented from attending. Um, and often they have anti-LGBTQ curriculum. So, you know, you can go to that school, but they're going to teach terrible things about about you at that school. So um, they really, there's sort of a range of, of protections that kids lose. And, and then in terms of Republicans uh, and, and our conversations with them, what do you think are the arguments that, you know, seem to resonate the most in, in, in those, when, we're, when we have those kind of meetings with staff and members of Congress? I think it is really compelling to them to talk about rural school district. It's such a hard word to say, rural school. Um, but, um, you know, in rural school districts, there aren't really private schools to go to. And oftentimes the public school is really the center of the community. And so what happens in those communities is you might be taking money out of the public school system that would go to that rural school. And instead, it's draining money away from that rural school to send to um, private schools in a more urban setting. And so I think that really, that resonates with Republicans. And oftentimes when Republicans vote no against these programs, um, that, is, that is frequently a, a reason why. In the past, we've also had Republicans vote against new voucher programs when they are new streams of money with concerns of, you know, where are we getting this money from? So that can sometimes also be an argument of, um, you know, you're adding more money uh, to the budget, and where's that going to come from? Right, totally. And do you think that as these um, schemes have become more complicated, like, you know, I bet when you were starting out, it was just about the traditional voucher scheme, you know, the dollars go to provide a scholarship directly that the parents can use at a private school. It was pretty straightforward. But as these schemes have kind of gotten more sophisticated, we have tuition tax credits, we have now education savings accounts. Who knows what we'll have in 10 years, right? They could come up with some new form of them. But do you think that that has made these conversations more challenging on Capitol Hill because it requires like the, the typical education staffer that has 25 other issues on their plate to have some, some more detailed understanding of how this works? And has that, been, has, has that been difficult for NCPE to kind of educate our own members about these schemes or educate staff about this? Or do you think that at the end of the day, these are all vouchers and and, you know, as long as we're very clear about that and not calling them by their preferred kind of nomenclature, um, our message is, is, is strong and resonates. I think it is more complicated. And, and actually, that is why it is important that we always just keep calling them vouchers, because they are all vouchers. They're just tricky schemes and shell games to make it look like they aren't vouchers and fancy names like Education Freedom Scholarships, which sounds lovely. Um, which is just, again, a voucher. So I think it's important for us to have, just continue to call them vouchers. But yes, I think, I think it is confusing to some people. And I think that especially really the public, right? Because 
you know, when you read the news, it's going to be called education scholarship fund. It's going to be called a tuition tax credit. It's going to be, you know, and that sounds great, right? Like who doesn't want a tax credit? Everybody wants a tax credit. And so it's hard sometimes to get people to realize, well, yes, you know, you're getting a tax credit, but really the government is paying for it. And so um, the taxpayer is really the middleman in this uh, shell game where it's really just a voucher. So, yeah, so I think we have to come up with simpler explanations of how a tuition tax credit in an ESA is a voucher. But I also think that, you know, again, we just have to keep calling them vouchers um, and not letting people manipulate the language on the other side. Yeah, and same with school choice, right? And that, and how that, I'm sure, you know, is, has become just the, the term du jour that everyone likes to use as well, as you know, instead of saying vouchers, um, they, they use it school choice. And, and what, when, when you hear that, what do you usually say when people are frame things like a staffer unknowingly, you know, will say like, well, my boss is supportive of school choice. And what's your response typically when that, when that conversation happens? So I usually respond that it is choice for the private schools, not choice for parents and students, because private schools can have their own admission standards uh, private schools can require that you pay additional funds above the vouchers in most programs. And so really it is giving private schools money and saying, pick the kids you want to admit and reject the kids you don't. So, you know, there's some kids that don't get into these programs. You know, students with disabilities are, are commonly prevented from being part of it because the schools don't provide the services. Kids of certain, you know, religious beliefs are often prevented from attending because there are really no secular schools to attend. So, yeah, it's not about choice for the kids. It's about choice for the schools. Yeah, I found that that, that term just, just dropping it completely, not even trying to reflect that we're talking about school choice has been really important in, in our conversations. I feel like if you start using their language, you kind of are, are, are losing kind of the, the political battle a little bit in, in these in these conversations with staff who and who, who may think of also school choice as being, you know, charters. Um, they may think of it as being magnet schools. And, and, and that's okay to have, I think, a rounder view of what that means. But we know that the other side, our opponents, are always using school choice really to mean vouchers. Um, and they've just picked up on this very successful kind of framing of the issue that sounds benign if not, if not appealing to some people and, and have really you know developed a, a way of, of inserting it so so well and so fluidly into so many of these policy conversations that I'm sure that happen at the state level as well. Yeah um, I, and I think that referring back to it as it's not school choice it's privatization um, can be helpful too. Yeah that's a great point yep. So um, when I think about the, the really big voucher fights that I've been part of with NCPE, but that NCPE is engaged in for a while generally, I think that the biggest one wasn't actually about a bill or a policy moving through Congress or the administration, but about a person. Um, it was fighting the Betsy DeVos nomination by President Trump to be the Education Secretary. And it, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Do you think this was the biggest fight that, that we've had? and and when you look back, do you recall thinking initially it was winnable or that we were ready for this? That was a really crazy time. No one, including Trump himself, expected him to win the election. And so everything was really chaotic. Um, his staff wasn't prepared for it. Congress wasn't prepared for it. For it. Those of us who do work on the Capitol weren't really prepared for it. And then all of a sudden, we just kept seeing all of these nominees who were really stunning on all fronts. 
but DeVos stood out from the very beginning as one of his worst choices. And, you know, when it first happened, I was like, I don't know if we could win. You know, he's a new president. But the outcry on her was really fast. It was really loud. Um, you know, we would go in and talk to senators on the Hill, talk to, talk to their staff. And they were saying that, you know, she was, she was as bad in, in person during their meetings as uh, we expected them to. So, so we knew that, yeah, she was as bad as we thought. And then she had her hearing uh, and her performance was dismal. And um, I think those things combined, senators actually truly being concerned, the public being outraged, her performance being terrible. Uh, and then I thought we had a chance. We did have a challenge at NCPE, though, because when it comes to nominations, a lot of organizations don't like to take a position. Um, some actually have official policies that say, you know, the president gets to pick whoever uh, he wants or she wants to be in their cabinet, and so they're not going to challenge that. Some become concerned that, you know, the person's going to get confirmed anyway. We don't want to make that person mad. We have to work with them for a few years. Um, we're going to stay out of it. And so, um, though everyone was outraged, it was hard. It was a little bit hard to get some people to take a position. And so, what NCPE had to do is, in our letter, we said we had concerns about her, um, and we urged senators to ask her real questions. Um, but we did a lot of work about those concerns. We did a lot of research. We provided tons of information to the Senate. We proposed questions to the Senate. We met with Senate staffers. Our member organizations participated in rallies that were put on by our, our allies. And so we did, we did a lot of work and we came very close. And um, in a sense, our, I would say our effort was historic because um, Mike Pence as the vice president had to come in and break a tie um, in order for her to be confirmed. And so we didn't win, but you know, we got her to the point where Mike Pence, you know, for the first time ever, had to step in to um, get her confirmed. It was a remarkable time. Um, and certainly the, the fact that vouchers were so front and center was, was really, I think, important um, to this fight and, and to how close we came to winning it. Mm -hmm. Do you think anything could have changed the outcome ultimately? So I would say, you know, DeVos gave a lot of senators a lot of money and had been a big funder for many, many years. And so I think that made it somewhat difficult for people to vote against her. I also think it was a, it was a brand new presidency. Um, a lot of um, Republican allies of, of Trump didn't want to vote against him and start off their relationship by voting against members of his cabinet. Um, so I think we really did the best we could. You know, we came so close, but I think it was really the best we could. But, you know, that being said, I think though, you know, her, her uh, nomination didn't tank, we actually had a huge impact on the narrative. Vouchers were in the national spotlight more than they had been during, I think, all of our tough congressional fights, more than they've been during a lot of the really big, important state fights. People were talking about vouchers around the country, and it was all negative, and it was a lot focused on the things, you know, that we'd been focusing on, the, the negative impact on student populations like students with disabilities, talking about how they just don't work and they actually um, are bad for academic achievement. Also, her presence has just galvanized the public on this issue. And I think her role as Secretary of Education has actually helped inspire dramatic wins like the Arizona voucher referendum where they voted down a, a voucher program or amazing moments like the strike in West Virginia that happened this year where teachers went on strike 
to oppose a voucher program. And so, you know, in some ways, her being Secretary of Education has been a win for opposing vouchers because um, people associate with them, them with her, they paid more attention to the issue, and they are more opposed to them than ever. That is a great point. It does not stop her from talking about them all the time. <laughs> True, which um, is very, very bad. <laughs> right, right. Um, so let's talk politics as Congress. We have two major voucher schemes that are under discussion right now uh, this year. The first is the reauthorization of uh, the DC voucher program, which is the only federally funded voucher program. Um, and I know sometimes when I talk to our members, their eyes kind of glaze over because they're like the DC voucher program, why should I care about that? But talk to us about why they should care about that from your perspective. Yeah, sure. So this program adopted in 2003 as a pilot program. Um, 15 years later, it is still in effect, which uh, demonstrates to me why everyone should always be afraid of pilot programs because they don't go away, even when they're terrible. So, you know, the DC voucher couldn't get enough votes to pass as a standalone bill, so it had to be tacked on in 2003 to a huge spending bill. They had to, uh, to pass to avert a shutdown. Every time it's been reauthorized since, it's always been a huge spending bill and a government shutdown. The voucher is one of the most studied programs, and the Department of Education has performed six studies, all of them showing the voucher doesn't improve academic achievement. Um, the last couple showing that it actually leads to significantly lower math scores. Also, government studies showing it has a huge accountability problems, yet uh, proponents are still trying to authorize it. And it's actually, um, DeVos wants to double its funding, and so there it sits. Um, and we're fighting this year to um, zero out the funding because it's supposed to be reauthorized again this year. So we are starting to work on that as the process starts. But here's why I think you should care. It's a voucher, right? And so, again, like Sasha said, people are like, well, it's in D.C., whatever, that doesn't relate to me. But your taxpayer dollars, everyone's taxpayer dollars are going to fund this voucher. Um, so, one, it actually does affect everyone, even though you don't live in D.C. Second of all, Congress though all the studies are showing how terrible this program is, supporters of the program tout the DC voucher all the time as being why there should be more federal voucher programs. And so this is being used to promote other vouchers and to pr promote you know, vouchers in the states. And so the longer this sticks around, the more there is a federal voucher program, um, which sort of gives justification for more of them. And so I think that's, you know, one, a couple of reasons why you should care. Very well said. So the other issue is, is new. Uh, it's this new, unprecedented, historic investment, as Secretary DeVos said yesterday, in vouchers um, that she's calling the Education Freedom Scholarship Program. So can you talk to us about that proposal and what makes it unique, other than the fact that there's a $5 billion price tag attached to it, and, and what you think will happen politically with it this year? I think one of the things that I hate most about this program is the name because I just find it so irritating that it's called the Education Freedom Scholarship and that that's how DeVos keeps talking about it. Of course, it's a voucher. Um, it's also really frustrating because she is claiming that there are you know, no dollars are going towards it from, from the government, um, which uh, the Washington Post has given three Pinocchios because it's a complete lie. So essentially, it's a tuition tax credit, and it would give $5 billion of taxpayer dollars that could go to public schools and instead funnel it to private schools. So 
Uh, what happens in this program is um, a business or an individual would donate money to a scholarship fund. That scholarship fund can give a voucher to a student to use at a private school, but then the government comes in and fully reimburses the contributor dollar for dollar tax credit. So, you know, some people will say, oh, it's a donor to the scholarship fund. It's not a donor to the scholarship fund because they're literally being completely pay paid back. What that person is, is the middleman in a shell game. Ted Cruz from Texas has introduced this bill in the Senate. Representative Byrne of Alabama introduced the bill in the House. And so they're, they're sitting there and, you know, DeVos is talking about this program a lot. She's testified three times in the last two weeks, three weeks before Congress and has brought up this topic and has been promoting it. She's been traveling around and promoting this topic. Um, you know, the, the good news is that I don't think it's going to move. You know, the Democrats in the House are not interested in this program. Of course, you know, we still have to be vigilant, right? Because um, it could get tacked onto something in the Senate. Who knows? They do all sorts of um, sneaky things, uh, putting bills, you know, amendments on bills. But I also think that we really need to pay attention to this because she, with the new name and with this new program, I think she is really waging a messaging war here, right? So she wants these things to be called education freedom instead of even school choice. And so I think it's really important that we pay attention to this and we fight this and we push back on her false narrative. Yeah, and I think it's really clever that they have decided to kind of make it seem as though this isn't just about private school vouchers, but public schools can get the funds and the state could set up a tax credit organization to fund public schools. And this has been clearly the most creative attempt, I think, to try and pass some kind of voucher legislation at the federal level that I've seen and, and try and make it about something beyond just diverting dollars, federal dollars away from public education. But um, yeah, it, I think I, I think you're right about all of that. Politically, we just have to stay on top of it. It's not something that we can not speak about because after all, there's a lot of folks on the, on the other side who are, who are interested in, or invested in this program or would like to see what happens if it was funded even for a year, you know, a la pilot. So it's, it's something that we're definitely paying attention to even though I would say, as you mentioned, that the Democrats are just very, you know, there's zero appetite for the Democrats to, to do anything other than pounce on it, like they did yesterday, and talk about how, how terrible it is. Yeah. Um, but uh, I want to move now to just uh, some issues that aren't about, about school vouchers that, that AU frequently works on and that connect directly with our membership of district leaders. And, and I want you to ask, this is something you and I don't talk about that often either, actually, but I hear about it intermittently in your, in, when I'm at meetings with you when you're doing emails or other things and, and you mention this stuff. So it's partially my curiosity that I bring this up, but can you share a bit about the policy battles that AU has engaged in at the state level and at the federal level, if it's relevant too, that touch directly on issues that you know we think about as K-12 leaders like religious instruction in schools or school-sponsored prayer, and, you know, whether this work, which I assume has always been really a hallmark of Americans United's work in these areas, you know, has, has changed what trends you've seen lately, and just generally, like, how, the, how these things are playing out in states and in districts generally these days. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm still amazed at how often some of these core issues come up, mostly in state legislatures, uh, less frequently in federal legislatures. But, you know, we still see bills about, you know, teaching creationism and then they've rebranded intelligent design in schools. We still see school prayer cases, try, you know, groups trying to find ways around 
um, the law that prohibits school-sponsored prayer in schools. Um, we fight those. The, the big issue we've seen lately, though, is related to, to religion in schools, is connected to this new campaign called Project Blitz. And it is a campaign created by the Congressional Prayer Caucus Foundation and some other groups. And they have like this three-tiered approach. So they start with these model bills um, that seem more innocuous, and then they build up to bills that would allow religion to be used to discriminate. So they're really kind of the ALEC for the religious right, where they you know, have this whole series of, of model bills and talking points and responses and all of these things. And because it's connected to the Congressional Prayer Caucus Foundation, they create these prayer caucuses in the state legislature, and then they feed these bills to them. So the, the listeners might have noticed last year that there was a whole slew of bills that would require the posting of In God We Trust in public schools. That was a tier one project list initiative. initiative. There were 26 bills introduced in 13 states. Um, this year, there were 18 bills in 13 states. And though the members who were introducing these bills would say, oh, we're just putting up the national motto. It's just good for kids to know the national motto. Um, but what they were really doing this, and they're, when they would testify or they would go speak on the Senate and House floors, they would sort of reveal that their real reason for doing this is because they wanted to put God back in the public school. And they would you know, make comments like, we need to put up the, the motto so that kids see um, that we trust in God. And so we opposed, opposed those bills because, you know, that's what they were really about. Um, this year, Project Bliss is really pushing the Bible class bills. And um, with some help from President Trump, who tweeted about this, we've seen 14 bills in 11 states this year. A couple of them have passed. It is true that schools can teach um, secular courses about religion, secular courses about the Bible, but what traditionally happens is they turn into more like Sunday schools than Sunday school classes and public school classes because the constitutional rules are, are difficult to adhere to. You have to find teachers, all of those things. And again, you know, the people pushing these bills really make clear that what they're really trying to do is to teach the Bible, not teach the Bible as literature or as history. And I think that these you know, it's the, these aren't just a church-state problem, but I also think that they should be of concern to um, people running schools because they are, um, you know, the, the, a lot of these are unfunded, unfunded mandates, and they are a huge administrative cost to schools. So, for instance, there was an Arkansas bill that got amended, but the original bill said if 15 students in any school say they want a Bible class bill, that school has to create a Bible class curriculum. They then have to get it approved by the Department of Education, and then they have to offer that course, hire a teacher, get all the books, and have that course. Wow. Yes. The idea that every school individually has to create this course because 15 students want it, and then the Department of Education has to approve it, I mean, that is a huge administrative burden. They have changed it since. But, you know, that's the thing we're looking at. Or, you know, in God We Trust bills, a, po a poster has to be published for every single school in the district, framed, hung, and you're opening yourself up to lawsuits um, over a lot of these um, initiatives. So I think that is something that superintendents would be very interested in and very concerned about that, you know, the cost of time, the cost of teachers, the cost of lawsuits um, should be of concern to them. So 
I think that's something that everyone should be paying attention to. Yeah, thank you for flagging that. Um, and related to lawsuits, you know, uh, that litigation is always, unfortunately, on the mind of our, our leaders, preventing litigation, ideally. <laughs> and then, and, and so I was just wondering, you know, do you ever hear from school districts or school district leaders that reach out kind of proactively to AU about church-state separation issues and want guidance about these issues and how they should proceed? Perhaps there's someone on their school board who's, who has a particular point of view or someone who works for them who's a tenured teacher or something who is doing something and they get wind of it and they're, and they're not sure what their kind of recourse is in, in some cases. Does that ever happen at AU? Yes. So I am in the public policy department and then we have an entire uh, litigation department. I think there's nine people in there now. And, you know, we sometimes we school, we sue school districts. Um, but we would really, really love actually to work with school districts to, you know, to, to prevent lawsuits and to ensure that there's good policy there. And um, there are um, instances where, where uh, school board members or superintendents will reach out to us and say, we have this problem, you know, what do you think is the best course forward? Um, we have assisted school districts in litigation. You know, they're, they, they recognize that um, there is a problem. They've, you know, there have been instances, for instance, with like teachers who will insist they have the right to pray before a football game, for instance, um, with their students, which is actually prohibited by the Constitution. And they've been sued by the teacher saying it's my, you know, my, my free exercise right to pray. Um, and we've helped school districts in situations like that um, oh. defend lawsuits because, you know, th there is no free exercise right to have access to students in a public school to pray with them. And so we have helped school districts in, in situations like that. Interesting. That's, that's really, that's really good to hear. So, yeah. so we say our folks should not be afraid to reach out if they are hearing stuff or getting, getting calls from concerned parents or, you know, other people about these issues that, you know, A, you could be a resource to them and providing them like, A, what, what is the law? What do they have to do? What do they not have to do? And be like, you know, if, if there is potentially litigation, you know, being being a, a resource or, or a support for, for districts. That's really helpful yep. to hear. Yes, exactly. We'd, we'd love to help when we can. Cool. Well, I think we're about out of time and I because I know how busy you are and, and I'm so grateful, first, Maggie, for your friendship. Second, that, you know, ASA has such an amazing partner with AU in fighting these private school voucher schemes. You know, it's, it's, it's terrific to be able to, to walk the walk with you on, on these issues on, on the Hill and, and with the department and wherever we're fighting them last year, it was with the IRS. We just keep changing venues these days. But thank you so much for taking time out of your super busy schedule to talk with me and our members. And um, I would encourage all of you, if you're, if you're interested in tracking uh, some of the work that Maggie talked about, to make sure you follow um, American United on Twitter. They're, they're really active. They also put out lots of fun infographics from time to time, like we did yesterday, about private school voucher schemes. Um, so I always enjoy those a lot and retweet them. But it's, it, they, they definitely talk about a lot of issues, I think, that are important to school leaders. And Maggie herself is also super active on social media as well. So uh, I just wanted to end it by saying thank you so much and, and give you an opportunity if there's anything else you want to make sure our members know to, to do so. Um, I don't think so. I, I This was really fun. I love talking about these issues. I love working um, with you. And so um, thanks for having me. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, stay tuned for uh, the next episode of, of the PEP podcast. You can catch it on ASA's webpage um, under PEP podcast.